We're going to speak today about probably a subject that uh, I bet you not a lot of you have heard a whole Sunday morning message devoted to what we want to talk about. I want to talk about making love in your bedroom, in your marriage relationships as husbands and wives without shame. And as soon as I mention that, the shame bubbles forth. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is why we have so much shame. In fact, there's one way to think about this, and I'll put it on the right over here. There's a whole way of thinking in our culture that somehow S-E-X is sinful. And that if you really want to be holy, that you don't get involved in that. For example, if you really want to be devoted to God, if you want to serve Him, then you're going to be sexually pure in the fact that you've abstained from sex all of your life. And that is more holy than if you were in a marriage relationship. It's very interesting that that started coming into the church in very early, right? In fact, to be honest with you, it was right in the second century. And just in a matter of a couple hundred years, you started moving towards a celibate priesthood, celibate nuns, and all that kind of thinking. And uh, that's a very powerful thinking within Christendom as a culture. And the religionist that holds that belief holds that that somehow sex is tainted with the fall, that somehow it's tainted with evil. And so it's something that is not really totally good. And if you really want to be close to God, then you don't get involved in sexual expression. Now, on the other hand, so on that side, we have the, 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 the strict, what we call ascetics. I'm going to use a fancy word. It's a word that you should get to know, because a lot of what I'm going to talk to you today has to do with asceticism. And asceticism is an idea that was very prevalent among the Greeks that there's something wrong with your body. And I'm going to speak to you a lot today about your body. And there's a lot of religious teaching that that somehow is communicating to you that there's something wrong with your appetites, with your desires, with your bodily needs and your bodily passions. There's something wrong with that. A lot of religion, in fact, if you study religion, you're going to find that a lot of religion communicates that. And so we're going to have lots of rules about sexuality, lots of rules about food, and on and on it's going to go. And ascetics hold that if you discipline this body enough, that you can get it under control, and you, especially if you make it have pain and you hurt it. Interesting enough, that often leads to the, the idea it swings to the other side that as I have this viewpoint that somehow my body is evil, it's corrupt, or that it's only temporary, it often leads to another side which has the idea, well, therefore, it doesn't make any difference what I do with my body. So on one side, we have these very strict religionists that hold something's wrong with the body. We're putting all kinds of rules and regulations upon it, holding down those passions. Then we swing the pendulum, as life often does, to the other side. In the 60s at Berkeley University, there are big, big placards saying sex is freedom. And the women, you know, would rip off their clothes in public and you'd have public expressions of sexuality. That was, you know, my generation, the 60s generation. The young people today are living in the wake of that. And that's ancient history. But those slogans, sex is freedom, make love, not war. And the basic idea was, is that now that we have uh, antibiotics that can help us with disease, now that we have preventatives so that we're not have to be afraid of children, now we're in this glorious freedom, and it was like it was a new thing, and you're going to learn today there was nothing new about it, but the basic idea is that sex isn't any different than eating. And what you need to understand is that across our culture today, there's many, many, your young people are being taught 
that sex is no big deal. That it's not any different from eating. It's just a physical expression. And so you can do it whenever you want to, however you want to, and with whomever you want to. So you have these big things. And I want to share with you that the culture, a lot of times, is in a war over these things. On one side, we have those that are battling for lots of rules, lots of governmental laws, and all kinds of stuff on this side to control sexuality. By the way, you need some of that in a social, if you're going to have social health. But on the other hand, you have those that are fighting. In fact, I, I mean, I'm going to predict that there's going to come a day when it's going to be wrong from the government standpoint, for me to teach you the way I am going to teach you today. Because one of the things that our culture on this side believes is that your body belongs to you. And you have a right to do whatever you want to with your body. And that is a God-given right, quote, quote, and no one has the right to take that away from you. For example, in the abortion debate, if you are a woman and you get pregnant, and they view that it's just a little piece of flesh, which is part of your flesh, it's part of your body, that it is evil for anyone to say that you can't do whatever you want to with that piece of flesh, even if it's almost nine months old and would live really well outside of you. That's what the conflict is about. I want you to see it. It's much deeper than just, you know, the, the one group of religion on this side and sectarian, you know, libertines on this side. It's much deeper than that. It has to do with a fundamental belief that's prevalent in many of our culture and it influences each one of us. The basic idea is that you determine whatever you want to do with your body. It relates to the homosexual debate. The basic idea is that I own my body and I was born a certain way and I can express my passions any way I want to. And if you block me, then you're a bigot and you're a racist. And, and, and our young people are going to actually be taught by they'll sound like pastors like me. They'll be moral teachers, quote, quote, moral. But they'll be telling you that it's actually very evil what I'm going to teach you today. That your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone else. Someone else created your body and made it to express sexuality in a very important way, in a very beautiful way. But when you don't do it according to his instructions, according to the creator's design, that it's going to really hurt your body. And it's going to really hurt your emotions. And it's going to really tear life apart. And it's going to cause you not to stay together in your marriages. And it's going to cause little children not to know for sure who their moms and dads are. And it's going to be really painful for little babies that get aborted. And it's going to be really painful for little children that don't have moms and dads, both a man and a woman in their home, to have balance in their upbringing. It's going to really hurt. But what I'm teaching you is that you're going to have a culture that's going to say, no, we can jettison all of those biblical principles and we can be free. Now, I want you to think really hard about what you believe. Because as your pastor teacher, I want to share with you that I love you. And that's why, like, I, I, I'm, you know, like I've already raised my kids. I've been married for 35 years. And I've, I've, somebody taught me this stuff when, you know, from God's Word when I was young, and I'm sure glad they did. And I really want you to know that I recognize 
your right to choose. You don't have to listen to me this morning and have to buy what I say, but I want to share with you, I don't care what the government says, I don't care what anyone says, I'm going to open up the Word of God and I'm going to teach you reality. And you're going to decide how you're going to live. Now, you can disagree from the Bible. We can debate together what the Bible says, but I want to challenge you, you can learn about sexuality from cosmopolitan, and it's going to, it's going to lead you down a certain path. You can learn about it from friends on TV. You can learn about it from Playboy. You can learn about it from Penthouse. You can learn it from the Dallas Morning News and their editorials. But as a born-again believer, you need to, first of all, learn it from your daddy in heaven. That's what we want to begin to do today. We've been going through homebuilders.god. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 because we're working through this classic passage on your marriages. If you're single, you should be all ears because this is what marriage is about. And you need to be, if you, maybe you're looking forward to this kind of relationship. If you're older, you really need to listen this morning because if you're older in our church family, you have an awesome responsibility to teach this stuff to the younger ones. You've already lived this. Many of you already can give hundreds of illustrations. I had a, a grandparent, two grandparents come up to me after the first service. They said, man, that was great, man. Now I can get stuff to give to my grandkids. That's the point. Nobody in our church family gets away from training the next generation. Amen? I want you to stay totally immersed with kids and teenagers. So everyone needs to listen. If you're not married today, it still relates. If you're older, some of you are widowers. And, and widows, and I want to challenge you, what I'm going to teach you today should remind you of precious memories, and it should cause you to look forward to the great day of, rec- of reconciliation and restoration and renewal. And it should give you a passion to pass along the values that make you weep as a widow or as a widower to the next generation so that we'll have young people that are growing up with the same passion that you had in your marriage relationship, which is what's the basis of your grief but it also can give you something so precious to share. So I want to communicate as we talk about these biblical issues about family, it's not segregated to any little group, okay? It's for all of us. We've been going through this passage, and Paul's getting near the end. Look what he says in verse 29. He's talking to us as husbands, and we talked about the role of the husband, and Paul made it very practical. After all, you husbands, no one ever hated his own body. You comb your hair, you feed yourself, you brush your teeth, you make sure you got a good warm blanket in the winter, you make sure... Now, this isn't all in Paul, but this is what he's talking about. Okay? He says, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he keeps it warm. He cherishes it. And I talked to you, husbands, about the need for you to feed your wife. And you feed her not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally and every other way. You also keep her warm. And you keep her warm in a relationship. And you meet all of her needs. Then he says this, which is unbelievable, just as Christ does the church. And this is what we've been learning all along. Your relationship in your marriage, your husband and wife relationship, flows from this higher eternal relationship of Christ's incredible union with you as the body of Christ. And that's what our marriage is about. Our marriages, our physical relationships and our marriages are connected to this eternal, blessed, infinite relationship that we have with the blessed Son of God. If you don't have that relationship, then you're not going to understand the foundations of everything that I'm teaching you. Because Paul is saying that the meaning of your marriage is rooted in the meaning of Christ's relationship with you. And Paul drives this in the next verse right into the sexual relationship in a marriage. Look what he says. He says, for this reason, for we are members of his body. That's the idea I want to, before we get to the, for this reason, for we are members of his body. 
That should blow us away. We are members. As I look at you, I want to stress as I'm teaching you this morning. It is awesome to teach you today. You know why? You are Christ's body. I'm looking at Christ's feet sitting before me. Christ's hands. It just blows me away that the Lord has given me the privilege to be able to talk to such honored people in the universe. And to challenge you to be Christ's arms and his feet and his eyes this week out there in the marketplace. That's just incredible. So don't you believe Satan's life? Some of you teachers that are trying to get across identity, worth, the worth of your identity and how you help people to understand. As born-again believers, I want you to understand this is the greatest identity there is. It's your identity in Christ. And I know you can't do that during school hours, but after school and having kids over to your house and everything else, you can help them to understand that ultimately the gift of identity is to be identified with Jesus so that you become his child forever and ever through a personal relationship. We are members of his body. That statement alone just blows me away. As I look at you, you are members of Christ's body. You are precious. You are honored. And you say, Dave, why are you stressing that? Because if you understand that, then you won't treat your sexuality cheaply or lightly. If you understand that you're a prince of heaven, you're a princess of heaven. If you understand that you're a daughter of God, that you're a son of God. If you understand that, no one will ever be able to get you to use your temple, your body, lightly and illicitly. Because you'll understand the dimensions of of the choices you need to make. And that's what Paul says, you are all members of Christ's body. Therefore, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And Paul's giving you, this is the meaning of a marriage. The meaning of a marriage is that a man, a man grows up. And I want you to see the order here. A man doesn't get to be 13 years of, old, years of age and he's now able to function sexually. So now in order to be a really big man that he has sex with, with a prostitute or he has sex with any woman that he can find. And that's coming of age and becoming a man. That's not what Paul says. He says that a man here, a man for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So the man has grown up. He's not ready to leave dad and mom. Which in our culture, you might be 46 before you're ready to do that. Hopefully not. In other words, a man has grown up. And it's saying that it's very important. He's saying that he clings to his wife. And I want you to see, it doesn't say that he clings to another guy. Doesn't cling to, you know, another man. A woman doesn't cling to another woman. That's easy. That's in, that, that in some ways, it's immature. It's like when you were back in junior high school in sixth grade, before you hit eighth grade, when the girls were on one side and the guys were on the other side. And you were separate. And you didn't have to venture into that weird territory of someone called a man. And that strange territory of someone called a woman. I would add, a man goes, like when Janae falls in love and the guy falls in love with her, I expect him to come to me and to be a man. And say, I love your daughter. I will never abandon your daughter. I will feed your daughter. I will put a shelter over your daughter. And I will love her till death do us part. And I want to ask you as her daddy, you gave her life with Mary. I want to ask you, I love you and I respect you. I want to ask you, will you trust your daughter with me? Because I want to publicly declare that I want to unite with her. And I'm going to stick like glue to her. Brothers and sisters, we need to recapture those values. Now, I want to ask you a question. Deep in your soul, deep in your soul, what do you really want? Guys, do you really want 
to have sexual intercourse with about 50 women? And that's your record? Ladies, do you really want to have intercourse with about 50 men? And then be going to the medical doctor, get checked out for the diseases you have. Do you really want to go where you're going to be telling me and counseling? To be honest with you, I could care less about sex anymore. Some of your junior high kids, some of your junior high girls are saying, Mom, it's no big deal. Everybody holds hands. Everybody kisses. Everybody makes out. Everybody has oral sex. It's, the, it's what everyone does. And some of you might go, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I, I want to be modern. I want to be progressive. I don't want to be labeled an old fogey. Come on. Challenge your middle schooler. What do they really want? When they tell you, it doesn't mean anything to hold hands. The first time I held Mary's hand, it meant something. It's not a positive statement. It means that I'm a little bit anesthetized. The first time we came back from Montreal after going to the World's Fair up there, and I was driving the car, and Mary put her hand sitting in the middle seat just over on my right thigh. That happened years and years ago. It meant something. The first time I kissed Mary in her driveway out in Nebraska after we told each other that we loved each other, it meant something. Maybe I was allowed to kiss her. Are you guys getting the picture? Now tell me. Is you, and you want to argue with your middle kids. You want to tell your kids a story. Is it a really great thing? It doesn't mean anything, mom and dad. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? It's a bad thing. It means sex has become like eating. Do you want sex just to be like eating? Is that really what you want? Is that what you believe about it? Is that what makes it precious? If your kids, what's happened in our culture, even the secularists are starting to argue like this. In our culture, kids grow up by 14 years of age, they've experienced everything. And the wonder is gone. And it doesn't mean anything. And then they have to experiment because the nature is if you don't fulfill your physical passions then you keep trying something else to find the meaning, to try to find some kind of high. And then you start taking drugs and everything else because you've got to do something when you're worshiping your body. We need to be a different people this morning. And some of you that are religionists and you think it's all a no-no and you're ashamed makes you not talk like I'm talking today, but I've got news for you. The Word of God talks like I'm talking today. The Lord God of heaven, your ultimate daddy. I'm an Old Testament major. And I can take you into passages in the Old Testament that'll make the most secular person here blush like you've never blushed. And it's God, your heavenly daddy, talking. But I want you just to know the truth because the truth is going to set you free. We need to recapture a day when a husband publicly declares, I'm going to leave my dad and mom. And I'm going to cling to this woman till death do his part. And a woman says, I'm going to cling to him till death do his part. And then it says, and they will become one flesh. Now, when I was speaking, teaching, we were discussing this with a group of men at breakfast the other day. They said, oh, yeah, that means that, that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a companion with her and that we're one, that we're one in our thinking, we're one in our emotions, we're one in our will. And that's true. That's true. And they were saying that's what it really had to do with. One flesh means that we're really united in our personalities and, and we're going to be good buddies the rest of our life. Well, I got news for you. The Lord wants you to be a lot more than just good buddies when you get married. This is a Hebrew culture. This is a Hebrew verse. It's from Genesis chapter 2. It goes like this. After God creates Eve, 
and brings her to Adam, and Adam goes, wow, at last, I can't believe it. Finally, I got the companion, the ally I want. I'm going to call her part of me, Isha, because she was taken from me. And he celebrates that. Then Moses, the great teacher, says, now this is the reason I want my Israelite people, God's people, to get married. I want them to leave their dads and moms. I want them to stick like glue to each other. And it says, and then I want them to become one flesh. And the next verse doesn't say, and they psychologically united, and they had great emotional warmth towards one another, and they were great buddies, and they had holy, sacred marriages where they never had any physical relationship. The Hebrew text says, and they were both naked, and they were unashamed. And it's all in the context of being fruitful and multiplied. From a Hebrew standpoint, you weren't really married until you consummated that relationship in physical, sexual love. And the Bible is totally unashamed about that. And this is the balance. I want you to see the Apostle Paul is saying that it, the way that we counter this culture, where on the one side we have this warped idea that somehow sexuality is wrong, to the other extreme on the left that says sex is everything or sex is nothing, or you can do whatever you want to, we need to have born-again followers of Jesus that says sex is a beautiful expression of physical love that expresses deep spiritual love and deep spiritual realities in, the, in, a, in a devoted relationship that lasts for a lifetime between a husband and a wife. And one day it might be against the law to teach like that, but I'm going to still teach you that because that's the truth. And that's what I want you to think really hard about, and I want you to open your heart to receive it. Now, the Apostle Paul over in 1 Corinthians kind of gives a commentary. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. Because some of you are saying, oh, Dave, you know, that, that, that's nice back there in Ephesians. And, you know, those parents could really teach their kids like that. And, you know, they could teach about the joy of a one flesh sexual relationship in marriage and the purity of it and the joy of it. But, man, we're just in a new data now. You don't know this trouble that we're having. So I talked about the purpose of sex to be one flesh lover. Let's talk about the challenge. And I want you to know that the challenge today is still the challenge that was present in the first century. It was you're going to worship sex. Or are you going to worship Jesus? I want you to know that what you think about sexuality is about worship. And you're going to either worship Jesus or you're going to worship sexuality, especially immorality. Look what Paul says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing in Corinth, there was a group of people that were saying, this was their slogan, everything is permissible for me. So when I told you about, you know, do whatever you feel like doing, you know, make love, not war, sexual, uh, you know, sex is free, will produce freedom, That's not a new thing. That's what was being proclaimed among Corinthian believers in the first century. And I want you to know that there's elements of truth in this statement, everything is permissible for me. In Christ, in Christ, you are not under the law. So some of you parents that are trying to totally control everything with putting all kinds of rules and regulations about everything, and you're trying to control your kids that way, You're not teaching them about the power of the Spirit and about the power of Jesus in their life and and about the the nature of rules and regulations that they prove to us we can't make it. We don't obey them. And so there's elements of truth in this statement. Everything is permissible for me. In fact, Augustine and then Luther later quoted this verse. He said this, Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want. 
want you to think hard about that. Love God with all of your heart and then do whatever you please. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you will. And Paul believed it. So there's elements of truth in what Paul is saying. But I want you to see that if you really love God with all your heart, then the issue in sexuality is not, I can do whatever I want to do. When I was teaching kids at World Life years ago at a camp, kind of like the kids are at this week, the kids wanted you to give lectures on, you know, like, well, how long can we hold hands? Like, when in a relationship is it all right to hold hands? When is it all right to kiss? And how long can we kiss? Can we do it 10 and a half minutes or can we do it 11 minutes or just two? And then about dress, you know, can the dresses be here? Can they be here? Can they be here? Can they be here? Where can they be? And we fight about that, all kinds of rules and regulations. Paul is saying the issue is not the rule, it's is it beneficial? So as a guy, is what you're doing towards your girlfriend beneficial for them? The word beneficial means is it going to bring them good? If they don't marry you someday and you're with them as a 22-year-old and you get to be good friends, are you going to be embarrassed as a guy talking to her now husband about what you did before when you were dating? Is that going to be beneficial for for them? Your culture says, you know, one of the normal things you do is just like eating, you just have sex. Is that really beneficial for a 13-year-old girl or for a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old girl? Come on, be honest. Many of you have experimented. Many of your kids have experimented. And parents, you need to get honest. Let your kids open up. They're ultimately God's kids. And one of the things you need to go for, you need to, you need to try to get them to think of, is this really good for you? How's it making you feel? You went with your boyfriend for a year. Then you had sexual intercourse. And two months later, he's going with your girlfriend. Does that make you feel good? How does it make you feel emotionally? What do, you, what, what do you feel about sexuality? We have a lot of teenagers that are already very callous. In fact, when I talk to some groups of teenagers, they're already hard as rocks. They're already worldly wise, but they're not innocent. And that's not a good thing. It's a sad thing. And young people, I'm telling you that from the bottom of my heart, that that's not a good thing. The Lord doesn't want you to experience everything before you're 12. The the Lord has a beautiful rhythm to life and a growing up in life. And there's a great mystery in life. And Paul realizes that. The Corinthians were wrong. It's not beneficial. I'm free in Christ to love him. And that sets me free. That as a man, that I can have sexual desires towards Mary. And all of my passions can be aroused in powerful, the most powerful sexual drives that a man has. But when I look at any other woman in this room or anywhere else I am, it's got to be a man to his sister or a man to his mother with no sexual conquest, overcoming those sexual desires that we all wrestle with. Does that make sense? And I need to be thinking of, is that really going to benefit that person? Just think of it in my own case. Is it, if, 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 I, if I have a woman in counseling, and you all understand this, and she's really vulnerable and she's really broken, and I make a sexual move towards her, what happens to her, brothers and sisters, and what happens to my relationship with all of you? Will it benefit? Now, you all know that. You have me on strict standards, and I want you to. Very strict. 
But you know what? That, tr that applies to every one of you men as you go to work. Every single man in this room, you're no different than me. You're the temple of God. You're the body of Christ just as much as I am. And every young person, every teenager, every college student, every adult, is it beneficial? Is this really going to be good for that woman? And grown-up men, men that are understanding what God is really about, allow the Holy Spirit to start helping them to relate to women so that it benefits those women, so that it blesses those women, so that it builds them up, not just as an object to meet some infantile, childish desire that you have. Paul says this, everything's permissible, permissible for me, but I'm not being mastered by anything. The sad thing about sin is that when you give in to your sexual desires outside the will of God, rather than you being free, you become enslaved. And all of you that have ever gotten involved in sin is just the way sin works. It doesn't enslave you. You think you're being free, but you find out that you've got, it's like you're wrapped around by, a, by all kinds of threads and, and ropes that are holding you in. And Jesus wants to set you free. Remember that thing about food? Paul goes on, he says, you say, Dave, why are you talking about food? Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. This is the Corinthian slogan. Their idea is the food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And the basic idea is, well, one day they're all going to end anyway so that we can eat anything that we want. Well, you know, there's elements of truth in that. In fact, I want you to see that Paul agreed with that, and God will destroy one day both food and your belly. A lot of believers in our present day are way too focused on food. And, and, and asceticism will always influence your food. The idea that you somehow get really close to God by what you do do with food and what you don't, and you have, you're, just, you're just focused on food. I want to share with you, food is not that big a deal. Just receive it as a good gift from the Lord. Enjoy it. Grow it. Water it. Eat it. Thank God for it. And I want to tell you a weird thing. If you'll stop worshiping it, you'll probably not abuse it by God's grace. In fact, I, not probably. You won't abuse it. If you'll start being thankful and not get in this love-hate relationship. Because remember what I told you? What asceticism does, asceticism always causes you to come up with all kinds of rules about what you're not going to eat, what you're not going to eat. How many of you have ever done this? You have all kinds of rules about what you're not going to eat, and then all of a sudden you eat everything you weren't going to eat. Anybody ever done that? Anyone that's ever, ever done that, raise your hand. That should tell you something. Paul's saying, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Amen? You can all say amen to that. <laughs> evidently, you're not going to need to eat when you go to heaven. And your new eternal immortal body evidently is not going to have a stomach like you have now. And I don't, it talks about eating at the marriage supper of the lamb. And you know, I, you, you'll have to wait till we get to heaven. You know, we'll have to wait till we get there. But, but Paul's making the point. One day, we're not going to need to eat. We're not going to have a stomach that we need to eat. So our new glorified body is going to be in another dimension that way. But that is not true about your body. It's not true about what you do sexuality. Notice what he says. The body is not meant for sexuality, but for the Lord, and the Lord the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And this is his point. What he's sharing is that your stomach is going to be destroyed, but your body is not. And this is the idea. His idea goes like this. You sitting before me have become the body of Christ. You're united with Christ. And that's not going to be destroyed. In fact, one day when you're raised again after death, your body that you have now is going to be transformed. It's going to be glorified, but there's going to be a continuity with it. So it's important what you do with your body. 
He's also saying that that union that you have between your body and Christ now is going to be even more glorified and more transformed when you see him face to face. And this is his argument. The reason you can't go into a prostitute, which is what the Corinthian believers were doing. Some of the Corinthian believers were saying, my body's no big deal. I'm already in the heavens. It doesn't make any difference what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want to do with it. So they would say, therefore, I can have immoral relationships with a prostitute and it won't do anything. Because after all, my body's going to be destroyed one day anyway. Paul says, absolutely not. Paul says there's going to be a resurrection and your body that's now joined with Christ is going to be glorified. And if you, as a born-again believer, take your body and unite with someone that is not the partner that God has for you, then you're using what belongs to Jesus for a purpose that's totally contrary to what Jesus is about. And that comes back to this basic argument. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. That's what he's talking about. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Absolutely not. Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. That's the quote from Genesis 2. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This is what the scripture is saying. You are a person and you're a person united with a body. When you have sex with somebody, even if it's a prostitute, even if it's a guy that you've only known for a couple weeks and it doesn't mean anything to you, the Bible's saying is that in some ways you became one with them. You became united with them. In fact, one of the real tragedies was when you as a man say, this woman doesn't mean anything to me, and I just did it for physical pleasure, you've just cursed everything that Jesus says about her because Jesus says she's not just a prostitute. She's a woman. She's someone's daughter. She could eventually be someone's wife. She's not just a hunk of flesh. She's not just a beautiful ten. She's not someone just to meet your ego needs. Men, you need to think really hard about this. Because it has to do with worship. It has to do with worship. It has to are you going to worship Jesus and value him? Or are you going to believe that you're sexualized a man? One of the big worship questions is, are you going to believe as men that the meaning of my life is the thrills that I have sexually and the women that I can conquer? And if I can have that ultimate heavenly beauty, then I'm going to be alive. That's what sexual immorality is about. That's what, that's what Playboy is about. It's what Penthouse is about. And you're going to decide whether you believe it. When you're involved with an illicit relationship, when you're lusting after a woman, what you're saying, that woman is my goddess. She's the idol that I want to bow before. She's the idol that I believe will give me life. And I want to tell you from the depths of my soul, that is a lie. She is not God. She will destroy you. She will hurt you. And you will destroy her. And the Corinthians were playing around with this false worship 2,000 years ago, and we're still doing the same thing today. Now, what's the antidote for that? It says, flee from sexual immorality, for all the other sins that a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. He's not saying there that other sins don't hurt your body. If you get drunk as a skunk and run in and have a bad accident, you'll, there's a good chance you'll hurt your body and hurt someone else's body. If you commit suicide, you have definitely hurt your body. Tons of sin. In fact, all of sin will eventually bring death to your body. So what does Paul mean that other sins are outside the body? What he's saying is this. Paul pictures your body united with Jesus. 
When you take what is united with Jesus and you unite it in a sexual act with someone that Jesus doesn't desire for you, then you have destroyed something internal to that whole eternal intimate relationship that you have with Jesus. It's on a different level because you took what's supposed to be a picture of your intimate union with Jesus and you just trashed the picture. That was, that's, one of, that's one of the things that's really wrong with President Clinton's thing. And, and pre, I don't want to get into politics, but I want you to think hard about this. What made it so tragic what Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky? What made it so evil? One, it's an intern. In any other walk of life, if a doctor, a lawyer, a school teacher, city council member, anybody take advantage of a young woman that was put under their authority, those are serious, serious things. That's one of the things that's wrong. Number two, it's adultery. It's a total destruction of a relationship with Hillary in a relationship that only belongs between a husband and a wife. But another thing that makes it really wrong is it was done in the Oval Office. And all of you that watch the funeral, like we're from all different branches to, uh, as far as politics are concerned, but as American brothers and sisters, when you see the Oval Office and the, the circular rug, the desk, does it mean anything to you? My nephew today is in Iraq getting ready to fight for the authority of that office and for the freedom that it represents. For me as an American, it's not true for my British friends, it's not true for my French friends, but for me as an American, that's a special place. It's a holy place. It's in that way, you might say. For me, politically and, and from patriotism. Not holy in relationship to God. And, it's, and we want, don't want to confuse it. You understand what I'm saying? That's one of the things that made that so wrong. And if I, as a man, have sex with a woman that doesn't belong to me, other than Mary, then I am trashing a much more holy place, a much more holy ground, it's my relationship with Jesus. And I want us to start to connect with that holy ground. Because that's what's going to purify our thoughts. What's going to purify our actions. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And I want you to see, as a church family, we need to see. Young people, your culture is going to say, your body does belong to you. An adult, everyone's going to be telling you, your body belongs to you. And as, because you've been here this morning, I want to just go down and I want you to hear this loud and clear. Dave Wurtzen's body doesn't belong to me. I can't use my hands. I can't use my feet. I can't use my mouth just for me. And I can't use my sexual organs just for me. And either can you. My body and your body, if you receive Christ, belongs to Jesus. And that's what we need to get a hold of. And I want you to know that rather than that being a negative thing, if you're a young person, that is an awesome thing. If you're an older person, that's an awesome thing because Jesus loves your body. He'll take care of it. He'll bless it. One day when it's all destroyed by disease, President Reagan's mind was totally destroyed. But today in heaven, because of Jesus, he's okay. That's the truth because he received Jesus into his heart. And now he doesn't have Alzheimer's anymore because Jesus loves the body and he's the only one that can restore it. So it only makes sense to accept his ownership of the body. And then I want to close with, if, you're, if you let Jesus own your body, what does he do with it? Well, a bunch of young people deep in their soul, young people, when I often speak to them, 
Basically, the idea is, Dave, I really agree that I really want to love Jesus. But man, what it's going to mean is, man, it's going to mean that I never really have real thrills sexually. That's the basic idea. It's a deep lie that's in every one of your souls. It, you really need to obey God, like I often tell you. You need to follow him. You need to love him. But it's going to be a real bummer if you do. And Satan's going to try to build on that. Satan's going to try to get you to say, I'm going to get married. And then some of you, after you get married, you have the idea, now we're going to be really holy and we're not going to have sexual relationships. That's what the Corinthians decided. Satan's going to try to get you to have relationships with prostitutes and in immorality. And then he'll try to get you in your marriage to not have sex. In fact, what was happening in the Corinthian church, the men and women had decided in their marriage that they wouldn't have sex, and then so they didn't have sex in marriage. So then the men decided, because my body doesn't make any difference anyway, it's okay for me to go with prostitutes. And you get this weird swing from asceticism to libertinism and back to asceticism. What does Paul say? Paul, the Corinthians had a phrase, it is good for a man not to have intercourse with a woman. That's the first statement. The NIV is a bad translation when it says, now for the matters you wrote about, this is what the Corinthians wrote. Their statement was, it is good for man, and the statement wasn't not to marry. That's not the issue yet. The phrase in Greek means it is good for man not to have intercourse with a woman. That was the ascetic side. It's wrong to have sex, in marriage even. And Paul's going to counter that. And what Paul says is that is not true. But since there's so much immorality, he starts dealing with their argument that a person shouldn't have, shouldn't have sex. And what Paul is saying is, you're partly right. You shouldn't have sex with a prostitute. But you are dead wrong when you said that you shouldn't have sex in a marriage relationship that God has ordained. And he goes on and talked about that. And I want to close by by balancing out what we've said about the negative side and the warnings to talk about the positive side. Look what Paul says. He says, because of immorality, because that's one of the temptations we wrestle with, each husband should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. I want you to see that really carefully. Because some of you, there's a traditional belief and it's often, I hear it a lot among believers at times. The basic idea is as a man... I'm hot to trot sexually, and I have sexual needs, and I need my needs met. So all the men say, amen, brother, you preach it. And then the girls are taught, the ladies are taught, you don't have needs. In fact, you just need to grin and bear it. I know know a mother-in-law that told her future daughter-in-law, you know, you're just going to have to grin and bear it. It's agony. It's an awful thing, but you're just going to have to put up with it. One of God's curses on life. I want you to notice, the Bible doesn't say that. Paul says, husbands, it's saying here that your wife has needs. And you are to meet her needs. Some of you, when you get discouraged at work, and you get depressed, and you feel like a real little weenie, and you're just really down in the dumps, you withdraw. And you don't meet your wife's needs. Because you're angry, because you're depressed and it's time to come to Jesus and let him heal you and touch your life and help you to get over things that are bugging you so that you can give yourself. In fact, if you've been sexually immoral, I want to share something with you. If you've been sexually immoral before you got married, I know a tragic thing happened to you. As soon as you got married, about a month in your marriage, two months in your marriage, six months in your marriage, maybe a couple years in your marriage, suddenly the husband doesn't want to make love to you anymore. And I'm going to show you the reason for that. It's because before you were married, somebody else was fueling your relationship and he was hot to try to have you. 
because this is a great spiritual warfare. Remember I told you about worship? Before you were married, the evil one's pouring it on, pouring it on, pouring on. And if you broke his laws, now that you've gotten married, now it's legal from God's perspective. And Satan's not going to fuel that one bit. So all the faucets turned off. You say, what do I do about that? You come back to Jesus. Say, Jesus, we blew it. Forgive us. And he will. And you say, dear Lord Jesus, we're now married. And we love each other deeply. We want you to pour your passions and your love into our lovemaking by your grace. We open to your grace. And God can heal you. But if you don't ask forgiveness and you just keep plowing along, you're going to get into this weird thing. And the scripture says here, in biblical marriages, the wife has obligations to her husband, but the husband has obligations to the wife. Look what else it says. It says here, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and all the men said, likewise the wife to her husband, all the women said, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also her husband. I want you to see that. The wife's body does belong to her, but not alone. That's very important. So you say to the husband, can I do anything I want to with my wife? No, because her body does belong to you. Can she do anything she wants to with you? No, because your body belongs to you. But, it's, but it also says your body doesn't belong just to you, but it also belongs to your partner. That's where the sharing takes place. It's a beautiful balance. Way back in the first century, back in the olden days where there wasn't supposed to be any equality between men and women, the great apostle Paul and the inspiration of Scripture saying, every one of you women's bodies really precious and holy. Your sexual desires are precious. In your marriage relationship, they are holy, they are sacred. And you have a right to your body, but it's saying you need to use your body to meet the needs of your husband because you're obligated to do that under God. It says the same thing to the husbands. Husbands, your body belongs to you. And you accept it as a gift from God. But you also realize that when you're married, you're to use it to bring blessing and to give the gift of passion and fulfillment and love, like a drink of refreshing water, like Proverbs 5 says. And Paul says the only reason that you should keep from making love with one another is you should decide for a very short period because we're going to pray and then we're going to come back together again, lest we give Satan an opportunity as we close today, brothers and sisters, I want you to see the beautiful balance. I want to have a church family where kids learn as they're growing up in their sexuality. They're warned against the deadly destructiveness of sexual immorality. But they're taught, like we learned today, about the incredible passion and fulfillment and duty, holy duty, of the joy of marital love. They're constantly taught that balance. And if we do that, we're going to learn how to make love without shame. If you're sitting here today and say, Dave, I've really blown it. My challenge to you is get along with the Lord today and ask him to forgive you, and he will. I don't care what your past has been. Maybe you're a prostitute in your past, like some of these Corinthian women. Some of those Corinthian women got saved and became part of the bride of Christ. That can happen. That's what our church believes. If you're homosexual, I've spoken about homosexuality. I'm not rejecting you. I'm offering you resurrected, transformed, holy life. Let Jesus give it to you. Some of you in your marriage, it's really easy for me to speak. i just be honest, honest with you to close. Like, it's really easy for me to speak about this. And it's easy for me this week to be angry and upset. And I withdraw from Mary. And I isolate myself alone. So I have to open myself and say, Jesus, help me not to do that. Help me not to be so full of myself. Help me to open myself to the passions that you want. I would challenge you. If you're having trouble in sexual immorality, 
write down some of the temptations you're having. Go back over 1 Corinthians 6 and pray through this section. Pray through it. And the Lord will begin to deliver you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a church family that gives us the freedom to open up your precious book. And I'd ask you now to help us to learn from the Apostle Paul and not from the libertinism of the 60s and not from the religious asceticism that's been so much a part of Christendom for the last 2,000 years. Instead, I pray that we'll open ourselves to the glorious freedom of the children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.